Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is Raguncu Mucher. Yeah, I hope. Sorry if I butchered your name there. Um, he has written six books on the re- rebellion of 1857 the Sepoy Revolt and the Fall of the Mughal Dynasty and the beginning of British rule in India, which we are going to talk about today. And I always begin asking the guest, how did he get, began, begin studying the 1857 revolts? Well, uh, the revolt of 1857 is taught at every level uh, from middle school right up to undergraduate, postgraduate in India. It's it's a topic that recurs. And uh, so I was, by the time I was in high school, I was reasonably familiar with 1857. And I found that what I was reading about 1857 in the books, textbooks that were being prescribed to us uh, to be very unsatisfactory. And most of them were concerned about what to call it. Do we call it the mutiny? Do we call it the Sepoy revolt? Do we call it a rebellion? Do we call it the first war of Indian independence? And everybody was writing about that rather than telling us actually what happened in the course of the rebellion and what the rebels themselves did. One reason for this absence of focus on what the rebels did was the fact that most of the stuff written on 1857 was by British historians. Mm. And they were actually recording the the suffering and the heroism of the British in the face of great adversity, rather than looking at what the rebels were trying to achieve, what the rebels were doing. So this was a kind of a growing dissatisfaction within me. And uh, then when I came to the stage that I could, I would have to decide my own research area, uh, 1857 seemed to me, given my interests, a kind of natural choice. Mm. And I wanted to shift the focus away from this, this British saga of heroism and courage to what the rebels were trying to do mm. and look the, look at the rebellion from the point of view of the rebels rather than from the point of view of the victors. Mm. So let's begin with, as, and as you know, in Hindu and Islam, Islamic culture, pork is, and I believe this is what most historians, at least in the Western world, agree on that and part of the, what started the rebellion is that British in the East India Company, they had used some smothered bullets with pork fat. Is is that accurate to is why as why the rebellion started? Well that's not why the rebellion started. Oh, first of all, let me correct a very yeah. popular misconception that sections of British historians have perpetuated. The standard assumption of that group of historians is that Till 1858, India was ruled by the English East India Company. Mm. This is only formally true. Actually, the British government and the British parliament from around 1772 was thoroughly and completely involved in ruling British India. East India Company was just a token presence 
whatever major policy decisions were being taken regarding India were emanating from the British Parliament and the government of the day in Britain. Mm. So that's the first thing that these are policies taken by the English East India Company is to be is somewhat of a misunderstanding or a misnomer. Okay. And the rebellion had many very, very fundamental and deep-seated causes. And it was not precipitated. It was not caused by the introduction of one cartridge, one particular kind of cartridge for the Enfield rifle. It might have been the spark or the trigger, but... The real reasons were much more fundamental, which were which were affecting all reasons or factors that were affecting the lives and the belief systems of large sections of the population of North India. So let's talk about some other reasons that may, that led up to the rebellion. As I said, we talked about it was a spark. But what what would the other reasons be for leading up to the rebellion? So first, uh, let's look at some of the economic reasons. Mm. Yep. From around the 1820s in North India, the British had introduced land revenue settlements, which had two aspects to it. One was the complete dispossession and removal of all people that the British government thought were intermediaries between the peasants, the cultivators, and the state. This meant that in large parts of North India, people who had had control over land for three, four generations were being completely dispossessed and being removed from those customary rights that they enjoyed. So here was a dis disgruntled element who had lost their position in society and lost their income as well. Two, the same land revenue settlements enhanced the land revenue demand. So this was also directly affecting the peasants who were reeling under this very, very, very heavy land revenue demand. The demand was so high that the British government itself, British government in India, realized that the demand was very high. And in 1855, it passed a regulation which said that the land revenue demand wouldn't be more than 55% of the gross produce of the peasantry. Okay, So in other words, it was admitting that before 1855, it had been in places much above 55% of the gross produce. But even look at 55%, it means more than half of what the peasant pro produced was taken away by the state as land revenue. Mm. Okay. So there was this dimension of uh, over-extraction and heavy land revenue demand, call it exploitation if you want to, or if you want to. So there are these two elements at two different levels of rural society, which are creating discontent among cultivators, as well as those who had previously been in control of land, intermediaries, landlords, landholder, big landholders, and so on and so forth. And thirdly, for a completely different economic reason, uh, many of the weavers and artisans of North India had lost their occupations and their livelihoods because of the import of cotton cloth produced by the mills of Manchester in Britain, which were flooding the Indian markets. They were of good quality. They were of stable quality. 
and they were also cheap because they were mass and machine produced and they were coming and flooding the Indian market without any tariff barriers under the flag of free trade or laissez-faire. And because the British, uh, because the artisans of Northern India did not have any government protection, they actually lost out to this import, massive import of cloth, uh, cotton cloth. So both at agriculture as well as the non-agricultural sector, there were economic reasons for discontent among the people. Mm. That's one factor to be borne in mind when you are looking at the causes that led up to the great uprising of 1857. The political class was affected in North India for two different kinds of reasons. One was many of these kingdoms of various shapes and sizes in North India were annexed into the British Empire in India on the pretext that they did not have a male heir. So the line had come to an end and Lord Dalhousie in the early 1850s decided that the British government would not recognize an adopted heir. Adoption was a very common practice among princes and kings in India. This was completely disregarded. And so under the pretext of what came to be called the doctrine of lapse, the line had lapsed. Mm. So therefore, the British government took those principalities, those kingdoms over. Mm. The second was misgovernment what the british gov- british british rulers thought was misgovernment such and such kingdom was not being ruled properly and under the pretext of that they defined what misgovernment or good government was how it was be defined and how it would be seen and on the basis of those western uh, yardsticks of good governance Many of the Indian kingdoms, particularly one very large kingdom based out of Lucknow in North India called Awadh, A-W-A-D-H, was annexed in 1856. So among the princess, there were parts of the royalty who were affected by these kinds of annexations, there was also discontent. Thirdly, at the level of the soldiery, because this is where the revolt actually began. And because the revolt began at the ranks of the soldiers who were called sepoys by the British, which is an anglicization of the Hindi word, Urdu word, sipahi. So... It's often, it was often referred to as the Sepoy Rebellion, as the Sepoy War, and so on and so forth. The Sepoy Uprising, because it began within the ranks of the Sepoys. Now, the, these Sepoys also had reasons to be disaffected, one of which was that cartridge mm. that he spoke about. But there were other reasons reasons of pay, reasons of being forced often to go and fight across the ocean, across the sea, the Burmese war in particular. And there were also, they had also reasons to believe that they might soon be sent across to fight in China to suppress the Taiping Rebellion, which was happening around the same time as the revolt of 1857. Uh, they, they had grievances regarding the extent of leave that they were getting. Uh, and 
the sepoys were often treated very brutally, almost like animals, uh, with floggings and whippings and severe punishments for breaking of military discipline and so on and so forth. Uh, the price of mutiny was always blowing from a gun, the mouth of a cannon. So, and this was done as a spectacle. The entire regiment was rounded up and lined up in 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 the sepoy uh, in the cantonment, and then the quote unquote con convicted sepoy was blown from the mouth of a cannon, so that his body body became was blown into smithereens. Mm. So. These kinds of brutalities also added up to the disaffection of the soldiery. But there was also the growing perception from around 1830s that the British government was following a deliberate policy to undermine very closely held religious beliefs among Indians, irrespective of whether they were Hindus or Muslims. And some of the elements in this was the introduction of Western education, the introduction of Western medicine, the carrying out of some legislations that went against customary practices of common Indians. So the perception was that the British were trying to, in their efforts to modernize India, they were also trying to Christianize India and Indians. And this was perceived as a threat to a cherished way of life, a life that the common Indian and the princes as well had enjoyed with all its uh, drawbacks and warts and all, as they say in English, they had been part of that life. It was a familiar life. And it was perceived that this life was coming up under the hammer of the British. Mm -hmm. uh, this cozy life was being snatched away from them and an alien way of life that was to which they were not familiar, an alien way of life that came from all the way was exported from exported from Britain was being imposed on India. So this perception was reflected in the fact that they thought that their dharma, the word dharma is in shorthand translated as religion into English. But the word dharma has a much bigger connotation. The word dharma actually refers to a way of life, not just to certain religious beliefs and certain religious practices. They believe that the British government was actually undermining their dharma. And it was this that they were trying to defend when they rose up in rebellion. Every time a sepoy was executed for being part of the rebellion, we have records regarding this. I've written about this in many of my books. Every time a sepoy before being hanged or before being shot as a traitor was asked, why did he do this? And the reply was variations of the same theme. Our dharma was in danger. So we were fighting to preserve our dharma. If a human being's dharma is lost, what is there for him to live? Mm. Okay. So there was this element as well. Mm. And 
the cartridge that you referred to was seen as a part of this quote-unquote gigantic plot to undermine the dharma of the Indians. This was the last straw, as it were. Where did sepoys who were were hanged or shot from a cannon, did they look at them as martyrs, in a sense? Well, they often thought they were being unfairly, they were being unfairly treated, brutally treated. Mm. And they were also, it was a perception that uh, a proper trial hadn't taken place before they had been convicted. Mm. So let's talk about the beginning of the rebellion. Um, we talked about some of the process why it started now, but let's talk about the spark, how organized and how many began, because as you know, later thousands would join upon this rebellion, but how, what was the beginning of the rebellion like, and how, how organized were they? Yeah, so, before I go into the details, I want to take, make two points. Yeah. One is, as soon as you say that or as soon as historians say that the rebellion was rebellion began because of a cartridge, you are actually trivializing the whole thing. That one cartridge or one kind of cartridge can start off a rebellion. And it is also to say, implied, that this was an uprising confined to just the soldiers the sepoys, which is not the case. This is factually incorrect. Let's have no any debate or doubt on this score. The rebellion saw the participation of soldiers who were basically peasants in uniform, as well as the common people of North India. Hmm. Right? It was a popular uprising against British rule in which in certain places 100,000, 200,000 people were actually actively involved in, in the attempt to overthrow British rule. Hmm. So that's one point, general point I want to make. There is a tendency to under underplay, underestimate the intensity and the popularity of this uprising. And one facet of that is to say, oh, it was caused by a cartridge. And it was only confined to the sepoys. Hmm. Not true. The second is to say that this uprising was nothing more than an orgy of violence. That this uprising had no mind or no ideology of its of to, of its own. It was just some groups of people. Uh, taking revenge. Okay? Yeah. This again is not true. So let me now try to elaborate this second point. Mm -hmm. Why I say that the rebellion has um, had a mind of its own and also had an organization and an ideology as well. The rebellion began around this time in India, five o'clock in the afternoon on the 10th of May, 1857, in a cantonment town northwest of Delhi called Meerut. It was a Sunday. The white population of Meerut was getting, re getting ready to attend church evening service on the Sunday when they heard a lot of noise emanating from the cantonment part of the town. Uh, very soon, the verbal noises were overwhelmed by the sound of gunshots as well. And before the, the white population could realize or even find out what was happening, the sepoys joined by peasants of the adjoining villages of Mirat had invaded their homes. There was wide-scale destruction of government property. The jail was broken open. The treasury was plundered. 
the courtroom was ransacked. Uh, the arsenal was looted. Uh, these buildings were physically razed to the ground. Similarly, property owned by private white individuals, the houses in which they lived, were also attacked, set fire to, or broken down. And together with this kind of destruction, there was also killing. In Mirat, anybody who, who was considered to be a white man or a white individual, the term that was used was Firangi. Anybody who was seen to be a Firangi, irrespective of gender and age, was slaughtered. Okay. Now, as dusk fell, and this is a... So, there was a pattern in this destruction followed destruction of government property. They didn't destroy everything. They clearly identified who their enemies were and what belonged to the enemy. And they attacked those. Those were the targets of violence, including the body of the enemy. Once dusk fell, and this is a very important point, 75 of those who had rebelled in Mirat, they were mostly, these 75 were all cavalrymen, rode away from Mirat to come to Delhi. Before you move on, I just want to ask, was it not out of line to include the children and women of the during the killing and slaughtering? Would you agree or? Sorry, what? Yeah, they killed. I mean, there's no point denying it. Mm. But was it not out of line to include the children and women of this? Whose line? Out, out of line. That it was, you know. Out of line, but whose yeah. line? Yeah. Who put down the line? Good points. Okay, yeah, but move on. I just wanted to. Yeah. yeah. So. They sped away, they rode away towards Delhi, but before they rode away to Delhi, they cut the telegraph wire that connected Meerut to Delhi so that what had happened in Meerut could not be conveyed to Delhi. So they were very aware of the facilities that modern communication provided. So they arrived in Delhi on the morning of the 11th, very early in the morning of the 11th. It was that year, May was the early May was the month of Ramazan, the holy month of, for the Muslims. And the aging and completely ineffectual Mughal emperor called Badushah II who lived on a pension that the British government provided to him, was keeping the Ramazan fast as a devout Muslim. He had just finished his only meal of the day because before he began the fast as the sun rose. And from his window in the Red Fort, what is now today called the Red Fort, it was called the Lal Killa by the Mughals because it's built out of red sandstone. So in, from his uh, window or veranda actually of the Red Fort, he saw these soldiers riding into Delhi and they were very soon at the bottom of his veranda, at the foot of his veranda and they cried out to him to say that Badshah, that's the king, we have come all the way from Mirat where we have slaughtered the Firangi. We have taken arms against the Firangi and we have slaughtered the Firangi. We have come to you so that you can now provide leadership to the rebellion that we have started and reclaim for yourself 
the throne and the governance that rightfully belongs to you and has had belonged to you previously, your dynasty, to your predecessors. Now, Badshah was completely flabbergasted by what was happening. He hadn't taken a decision uh, in his better for the better part of his adult life because he was completely under the thumb of the British government. So he summoned the British residents to help him to deal with the situation. While all this was going on within the fort, the rebels got, got into the city of Delhi. To, Delhi was a fortified city. And they found some of the gates open and they got into the city, the rebel. And exactly what had happened in Meerut happened in Delhi. Destruction of government property, destruction of the lives of most of the white people who lived in Delhi. Meerut had a very small white population. Delhi had a larger white population. So they couldn't kill everybody. Some of them escaped. Quite a few escaped. But whoever they could lay their hands on, again, irrespective of gender and age, they killed. And the only difference between Meerut and Delhi is that they approached, directly approached, rode into the private chambers of the Emperor Mbadushah and said, you have to provide the leadership. No options being given. So Badushah was actually pressurized by the common people of Delhi and the sepoys to announce himself to be the leader of the rebellion that had already started. He, he was kind of a hostage in, in a sense. It was, was a kind of a, you know, a hostage situation. So they actually said, either you provide the leadership or we will take action against you, which is to say we will kill you. Okay, So mm. he had no choice in the matter. So he provided the leadership. Mm. and But this announcement by the Mughal emperor that he was, this rebellion was his rebellion, mm. had a catalytic effect on other parts and other cantonments of North India. As the news traveled that Delhi had fallen to the rebels and that the emperor had declared himself to be at the helm of the rebellion, one by one, as the news traveled down the Gangetic Plain, one by one, each of the major cantonment towns rose in rebellion. Was it, did, did they look at it kind of like a jihad in a sense against... The British? It was a war against the British. I don't think mm. they ever said it was a jihad. Mm. They, I don't think they used the word jihad. Mm. It was an anti-Firangi war. Mm. Right? Yeah. So, and in every cantonment town, the uprising followed the same pattern as it had followed in Meerut and in Delhi. That is to say, there would be a signal. It was most often the firing of the evening gun or the blowing of the evening bugle, the last post. And the uprising would start with the seizing of the arsenal, attack on the government buildings, attack on government property, attack on property owned by the white man, and then killing. Okay. And this pattern of act activity came right down the Gangetic Plain from Delhi traveling eastwards with amazing, if you put the dates and the place names on two columns, there's a correlation. The time, the correlation is the time taken for the news to travel from one town to another town. Travel, I don't mean walking, travel, I mean by horseback. 
So somebody is carrying the news that Delhi has fallen and the next major cantonment town east of Delhi rises in rebellion two days after that. Thus, the news of that second cantonment town having fallen is carried to the next cantonment town. It takes a day to travel by horseback to the next cantonment town. That cantonment town rises. So there is a pattern in the way the news was transmitted and disseminated and that contributed to the uprisings, the chronology of the uprisings as it were. By the end of May, early June 1857, the height of the summer, British rule in India, North India, had ceased to exist. As one British officer who survived the killings in this fateful summer was to write later, British rule in North India had fallen like a house of guards. The British who survived took refuge in three places. In Delhi, in a house belonging to a British official called Metcalf. The house is called Metcalf House. It still exists. It's now become a government office. So Metcalf House is where the British who managed to survive the Delhi uprising, there they took refuge. In Lucknow, which also had a very large white population, they took shelter in what was called the residency where the resident, the British resident lived. It was a very large house with a very large, with very spacious grounds. That's where they took shelter, surrounded on all sides by rebels. And in Kanpur, which was another very large, largish town with a largish white population, they took shelter behind a kind of a mud fortress that was called the entrenchment. So these were the only three pockets in which the British population, not numbering to even a thousand, managed to survive and take shelter in, or took shelter in to survive. Let me put it the other way around. Okay. And this is where the story, the British story of suffering and endurance gains ground because under terrible hardship, surrounded on all sides by the rebels, short of food, short of drinking water, um, you know, afflicted by disease and being shelled all the time, the British held out. Many died, but most of them managed, particularly the men and some of the women as well, held out and survived this horrific experience. Was there ever a sign that they would begin cannibalism hiding under there? For Sorry? Was cannibalism any... Cannibalism? Yeah, you know... No, they, I don't think there was any cannibalism, but there was a lot of eating of horse meat. When horses uh, were shot at and killed, horse meat was drunk. But the main problem was drinking great, getting drinking water, apart from food, of course. Uh, and eating dead carcass meat and lack of drink proper drinking water led to stomach ailments, particularly cholera, which caused death as well. So... But to move away from British suffering and British endurance, and this is where I come to the organization part, the leadership of the rebels in Delhi, in Lucknow, and in other smaller towns of North India were all drawn from the pre-British ruling class, political class. Okay. Kings, princes, large landholders, so on and so forth. Now, they actually 
meticulously planned the resistance to British rule. Whoever are surviving the remnants of British rule within the residency in Metcalf Hall in the entrenchment, how can we defeat them and either kill them or throw them out of India? Okay. How can we do that? We can only do that by fighting them, by shelling on them, fighting, firing guns on them, etc., etc., for which you need arms and ammunition supply, for which you need food supply, for which you need military strategy, a chain of command. All these were meticulously planned. And there were orders, we have these orders, many of these orders, these orders were sent out that this is what you are supposed to do. This is how you were supposed, you are supposed to fight. That's one aspect. The other aspect is they knew or they knew that there would be a British response to this. The British would send up an army from Calcutta. Okay, which was then the headquarters of the British in India. So they had to also plan to resist that army, that avenging army, which they expected, rightly, that would be coming into North India sooner than later. And thirdly, there had to be, if this war was going to be, or war was going to be organized on a long-term basis, there had to be some kind of civil administration which would back the military operations that were in place already. So there were attempts to restore the pre-British administration that had existed before they annexation of these areas by the Britishers. So we have evidence of administrative setups that are being established, administrative procedures that are being established to collect revenue, for example, to collect customs duties, for example, okay, to have pamphlets and proclamations printed to propagate the idea of participating in this war. Okay. So this is the level there. These are indicators that there were some, there was some level of organization in the revolt of 1857. And what about the ideology? The ideology as articulated in many of these proclamations, some of these proclamations have survived so we can make a textual analysis of these proclamations, as I have done indeed. So all these proclamations said what I have already emphasized before, that the British were trying to destroy the dharma of Indians. Therefore, it was the moral duty of every Indian to fight the Firanki. So join this war. These proclamations are instruments of propaganda and they are also instruments of persuasion. Join this war. This is why we are fighting this war. And the only way we can win this war is by maintaining our unity, not allowing the British to sow the seeds of division amongst us. So this also shows the ideology that religion, dharma was in danger. Dharma needs to be protected, to be preserved from the polluting pollution that the Firangi is bringing into our society. So in a sense, the revolt of 1857 is a war of religion as well as a war of restoration. Hmm. Something that you haven't mentioned and I, I want to talk about, you mentioned briefly his residency, but I want to talk about Theophilus Melkart, who was 
as in as the name may say, he was a resident of Delhi at the time for British India. And according to a Western biographer, he has quite an important role to play in the Sapkoi revolt of 1857. You are referring to William Dalrymple. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, uh, William Dalrymple is absolutely right. And it is a it is a very, very fine book that uh, that he wrote. Uh, his role was more symbolic than being active. He was in no position to be active. He was old. He was in no position actually to be out there uh, on horseback fighting the British. But the fact that he had said that he was the leader of this rebellion and many of these proclamations that I spoke about were issued in his name, gave to the rebellion a legitimacy. We are fighting on behalf of our Mughal emperor. We are fighting on behalf of our king. That is the symbolic importance. And this symbolic importance shouldn't be underestimated. That is the symbolic importance of the presence of Bahadur Shah and the stamp of legitimacy that he gave to this uprising. And also, of course, most of his adult sons, nephews, were all participants in the rebellion. Let's talk about some of his sons and their role in in the rebellion because they didn't take, like you said, Badr Shah II, he was quite kind of more or less a hostage, but the, his son seemed to be more or less immediate. I'm, I'm not, not sure if immediate. But his, his heirs were killed. Hmm. Right. His Two of his sons, his adult heirs died in battle, but two of his very young sons, I think one was 14, the other was 12, who were with Bahadur Shah when Bahadur Shah was arrested. And the only thing when Bahadur Shah surrendered, the only thing he pleaded was that the, the lives of his two sons should be spared. And the British officer who arrested Bahadur Shah, Hodgson, the first thing he did was to kill those two young boys. So, and he noted with great glee that he had carried out this act. So, when you talk of something being out of line, one should also consider whether this was out of right. line or not. 100%. There's also some other key figures in in this rebellion and what to talk about. And that is, I'm going to try to say his name right here, uh, Rani Lakshmibai of Chasi. Yes. Thank you for correcting me there. Let's, yes. let's talk about so, his involvement. She is a very... She is, sorry? Let's talk about her involvement in, in this rebellion. Yeah, so I've got a got a book on the Rani Amshasi, actually. Let me just show you the cover of that. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So Jhasi is one of those principalities which was annexed on the pretext of the doctrine of lapse. Okay. The king of Chasi adopted a child practically on his deathbed. And that adoption was not recognized. He adopted the child, and because it was a child, made his wife the regent. So she was the queen regent, as it were. But once the Adoption was not recognized and Chasi was annexed. She was just the widow of the king. 
again, living on a pension that the British government provided to her. This is 1853-1854. Much of 1855 and 1856, or from 1853 to 1856, the Rani of Chasi keeps herself occupied with two things. One is to get this annexation resigned. So she is writing letters, sending uh, agents, her own agents, to the governor general to say that, please reconsider your decision. This is an unfair decision and so, so forth. Adoption is a very common practice. You have recognized adoption on previous occasions. Why make a victim of chances? That kind of thing. And the second thing that she was also doing was trying to hike her pension. It was not a very generous amount she was being provided. So she was occupied in doing all this and keeping her, therefore, keeping her channels of communication with the British open all the time. Mm -hmm. While this, she was doing all this, the rebellion reaches Chasi on the 4th, 5th June of 1857. Okay. And again, I needn't go through the sequence of events. I've already uh, mm. described the sequence of events twice over, I think. So the same sequence happens there. And Jhansi is also one of the sites of the massacre of the white population. I mean, not a single white person escaped the massacre. There were no white people living in Chasi after the 5th of June. And having perpetrated or having rebelled and perpetrated this massacre, the rebels of Chasi rode off towards Delhi to fight in Delhi because the perception in North India was that Delhi is the seat of power. Delhi is where our Badshah or King Emperor is. And if we manage to win there, we have won the major part of the battle. And on, I must also say that on the British side, the perception was the same. If we manage to recover Delhi, we have won half the battle. Okay, so two sides of the mirror are thinking in the, along the same lines, right? So now, so Jhansi is now left without any government, right? Lakshmi Bai, the queen, doesn't have any powers because the administration has been taken over by, by the British, but the British have also disappeared because of the massacre. Now she assumes for herself the rule, the role of a ruler. This is, after all, my kingdom, my husband's kingdom. And it is my duty to look after the people of Chasi. And therefore, I should have set up a government and run this kingdom. And she is writing to the British. Even as late as December 1858, we have letters from her that I am holding Chasi for you in trust. When you come to Chasi, come back to Chasi, I will hand over the administration to you. My role is that of a trustee. But the British actually such is the spirit of vengeance in their minds because now the stories of all these massacres have percolated into the British administration and also the British army. They believe and continue to believe that the massacres had been carried out either on the, on the direct orders of Lakshmi Bai, the Queen of Chasi, or she 
was implicated in the massacre. Hmm. Now we have evidence that neither of this is true. But this is what the British believed in 1857, 1858. So in their, in their eyes, Lakshmi Bai's hands were stained with innocent blood, particularly of women and children. So she was not to be trusted. So when the British counterinsurgency measures started from around, say, September 1857, in November 1857, two armies from two sides begin a kind of pincer movement into North India. One army moving, headed by General Rose, moving from Pune in Western India, and another headed by first by James Neal and Henry Havelock and then by Sir Colin Campbell from Calcutta. They are moving from the west and the east into the Gangetic Plain, which is the principal theater of popular resistance against British rule. By August, Delhi has been recovered by the British. And this is largely the job of the army that was British army that was based in the Punjab, which is to the northwest of Delhi. Okay. And this army of Rose coming up from Pune lays siege on Chasi in late March and early April. When it becomes clear to Lakshmi Bai that she can, she fights them. Her troops under her leadership fights the British. But by April 3rd, April 4th, it is quite evident to her that she can no longer carry on the resistance with any degree of success against British rule. The British are overpowering the troops of Chasi, the rebels of Chasi. So she decides to escape from Chasi, which she does on horseback. She was an extraordinarily good horse person, equestrian. And she was good with the sword and she knew how to fire a gun. With her young child of eight or nine strapped on her back, on horseback, she escaped from the fort at midnight and under the cover of darkness so that the British could not actually spot her or recognize her. I, and, can, I can picture her riding on the horse, but with a child out of yeah. the city. So she escapes and she becomes part of the rebellion in other parts of North India, uh, particularly near Gwalior. And it is near Gwalior that she died in battle. Uh, her favorite horse uh, came on a, came across a ditch. And for a moment, the horse hesitated. This is the story, or this is the account that the British have provided us. We don't have any Indian account of her, eyewitness account of her death. But the horse kind of hesitated before taking the jump across the ditch. And it was at that moment that a sniper bullet got Lakshmi Bai. And she died on the battlefield. And she is hailed as a martyr by in the nationalist consciousness and the nationalist memory of most Indians. And of course, the fact that she was a woman gives it a greater salience and greater poignancy as well, an emotional voltage. If I may, she was translated Bodhidra in, in Britain, the Indian version, if you will, of Bodhidra who rebelled against the Romans in 60 AD, in a sense. Well, there a lot of parallels were drawn. I mean, there, there were people, some of the Britishers even described as a Joan of Arc, mm. you know. So the British admired her valor. The fact that as a woman, she could defy all conventions and uh, come out into the battlefield to actually fight 
they they respected that valor and also uh, somewhat reluctantly they also had to admit that for the few months that she had ruled Chasi, she had been a rather successful and benevolent ruler. Hmm. So let's talk about the British, if you will, retaking India and and the revolt starting to fa fail, go the, go the other way around. And how how quickly does this happen? Then how long do they actually stay in power, the rebels? So. If we take 10th of May 1857 mm. to be the date of origin, if you like, of the rebellion, then I would say that the, the main thrust of the rebellion is over one year later, mm. by April, May 1858. But embers of the rebellion in certain parts last even as late as September, October, 1858. So one and a half years at a, mm. give it a stretch, one and a half years, the thing, the, the rebellion lasted and it was put down by very severe, repressive counterinsurgency measures. So this, this British army was an avenging army. Mm. Because they had all, as I said before, they had all heard these stories, some of them exaggerated, some of them true, of the killings and the massacres that had taken place in almost every single cantonment town of North India. So as they advanced into the North Indian Gangetic Plain, they also took revenge. And so there were very, very horrible accounts of the kinds of violence that the British soldiers, the British army uh, carried out. Mm. For example, just to take uh, one example, because it is so well documented and it's easily accessible. Uh, a correspondent of the London Times, William Howard Russell, was a part of this army as it marched through the Gangetic Plain. And Russell not only sent dispatches to the Times, but he Russell also kept a diary of his uh, journey with the army, with his march with the British army. And in this diary, he records that as they marched up the Grand Trunk Road, which was the main arterial road that linked North India to Calcutta, that road was lined with trees. And he said, from every single tree, I could see that four to five men, Indians, had been strung out. And they had been, there was not a tree that did not have four to five men who had been strung up. And there was no trial, not the semblance even of a mock trial. If you were a male Indian, you were a rebel and you deserved to die. That was how the counterinsurgency measures were carried out. Near Benares, again, this is on record. A boy of 12 was seen playing with a military drum and two soldiers bayoneted that boy. That's brutal. That's just, wow. Yeah. So, so this is why I like to call 1857 the year of blood. Mm. There was unprecedented and incredible violence on both sides of the racial divide. The Indians carried it out and the British in their avenging zeal did the same thing. Mm. But another thing that happened, and I do believe a lot of historians seem to agree, at least some Western historians seem to agree that this would also be the end of the East India Company. Yes. What so this to the, in the, yeah. Once the rebellion had been suppressed, the crown assumed the direct role, direct crown assumed for itself the responsibility of directly ruling India, not even having that 
facade, which what I called a facade of ruling through a company. So it now assumed direct formal responsibility. So India became, Indians became a subject, of, subjects of Queen Victoria. Hmm. And let's talk about what happened with the Red Fort or Delhi, uh, because it was, if I remember correctly, raised to the ground, it's just the fortress really that today that still stands. In, the fort stands, yeah. yes, the fort stands today. I mean, it's just a historical monument. Hmm. It's not used for any official purpose. And let's, I want to end with what happened to Badir Shah II because uh, he he would end in life in ex extreme poverty and he would he, he would be taken away and he was he was oh, imprisoned yeah. in he was exiled to Burma to Rangoon mm. what was then called Rangoon and that's where he died and there's a rather beautiful shrine to him his mausoleum is now a kind of shrine there in Yangon mm. uh, which is most Indians go and see it when when they could visit <laughs> Burma now they can't of course nobody can. And I, I look Myanmar, this... I should be politically correct yeah. in Myanmar. Yeah. I, I looked this up, and there, there are still descendants from the Mughal Empire living. So many There are dime a dozen. I mean, uh, a lot of people claim that we are descendants of Badushah. Nobody has been able to persuade me or most historians that they are actually the descendants of Badushah. <laughs> But that he still do have that, some descendants. It doesn't matter whether they're descendants of Badushah or not. The Mughal line, mm. the Mughal heritage, came to an end in 1857. I mean, other than some magnificent pieces of architecture and some really poignant pieces of poetry and literature, uh, massive documentation. I mean, that's what the Mughal legacy is about. So a descendant of Badushah, I mean, even if he is actually a descendant of Badushah, the DNA proves that he's a descendant of Badushah. I mean, I don't think he'll get any traction in mm. India because of that. Mm. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Before you go, do you have anything you want to promote? Any social media or anything you, you want me to put in the description below? Sorry? Do you have anything you want to promote or any links you want me to put in the description below that you want to share or where, where can people buy your books if they are interested in reading more about the Yeah, you community? can. You can. You can do that. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Right. And, uh, thank you. My name is Adam. This has been Well Age 12. They are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts. If you have the time, Please consider writing a little review. That would help us out a lot. My name is Alan. Please like, share, and subscribe. I'll see you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.